1: Thank you for
0: downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter.
2: The uh, format for this evening is pretty simple, really. Each of our speakers, Andrew arguing that Napoleon should be called the great and Adam arguing that he shouldn't, will speak for about 12 minutes or so. Uh, Then we'll have a bit of argy-bargy for a few minutes. Uh, and then you'll all be free to ask any question you wish, no matter how rude it may be. Uh, And do feel free, please, to take part in in that part of the debate. Each of tonight's historians, and they're both distinguished historians, uh, have written, has written, an enormous book. Um, Here we are, the other way around. This one is heavier. Uh, Each comes in its own parcel-force truck (laughs) should you order them from Amazon. Uh, The proposition we're going to discuss is Andrew's claim that Napoleon should be called great. There is no question mark in his assessment. On the spine of this book, it's just Napoleon the Great by Andrew Roberts. Now, Andrew, as you know, is a very distinguished Historian who has made the business of Napoleon and what Napoleon got up to one of his main interests in life. He is the keeper, in many ways, of the Napoleonic flame. His books include Napoleon and Bonaparte, and Napoleon and Wellington. Sorry, <laughs> an investigation into the relationship between the two generals, Waterloo, Napoleon's last gamble, and his latest Napoleon the Great is also going to be the subject of a TV series, which starts on the BBC. Next year, isn't it? Next year, yes. As I say, he's gonna have 12 minutes or so to lay out his case. Now, it's often struck me that Brecht was pretty right when he said, happy is the land that has no need of heroes. And I was trying to think of anyone in British history who was called the great. And I could only think of Alfred, and I only know him as great because of his baking achievements. Rather in the spirit of the times, I suppose. But why Andrew is going to make the case that Napoleon should be called great. When I googled what did Napoleon do for France the other day, I learned that he took the country to war, had the country declare him emperor, nationalized anything he felt like nationalizing, and introduced a secret police. Now, we have heard of him, of course. We've all heard of him. He used to be used to terrify children in this country. He certainly won battles. He was, everyone agrees, a brilliant general. He rebuilt cities, he invented a legal system. He's even responsible for the street numbering system, is he not, that still pertains in most of this country with odd numbers on one side of the street and even numbers on the other. But what is it about this man who even Andrew, in this very lengthy book, which I had the pleasure of finishing this morning just in time, admits was a pretty sanguinary fellow at times. What is it about him that makes him so great? So, Andrew, tell us why.
0: Can I borrow the, uh, the bottom book there? The bottom? Yeah, we could learn something from it. I know, it's a go. wonderful book. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great honour to be invited to address you. And to answer Jeremy's question, the central point about Napoleon is the way in which he saved France. And to understand the dangers that uh, he overcame in the course of this, I'd like to quote from an extremely good book, uh, Phantom Terror, written by Adam Zamoyski. Um, LAUGHTER And what Adam writes on page 77, quite rightly, is... When he became First Consul and effective dictator of France in 1799, Napoleon had been faced by indescribable chaos resulting from ten years of revolution and counter-revolution, internecine political struggle, random political terror, class war and open civil war in some parts of the country. The authority of the state had been undermined by the rapid succession of governments, each of which overturned the legitimacy of its predecessor. The law had been turned into a By rival political factions, and justice had been politicized. Uh, Napoleon may have been a product of the Enlightenment and what conservatives saw as its depraved values, but he was a pragmatist. If he did not believe in divine right, he certainly had no time for Jacobin ideology, Illuminati, or dreamers of any kind. He believed in order and he knew how to impose it. So, what did he do with this order? Well, the first thing, as, uh, as Jeremy pointed out, was the Code Napoleon. He ripped up the 42 often contradictory legal systems that had so held France back and instead had one single code, which was from then on been able to, uh, to basically make France into a modern state, and it's been adopted by 40 countries of the world in every inhabited continent. He also created the glories of Paris... When you go on a romantic weekend to uh, to Paris, you will walk along the quays that were built by Napoleon the Great. You will cross one of the four bridges uh, built by Napoleon the Great. You will see the uh, Vendôme column in the Place Vendôme or the Arc de Triomphe de Carousel in the Louvre. It is partly because of him that it is such a, a glorious and beautiful city today, he built also the, the useful things like the reservoirs and the, uh, and the sewers. He was a true creator. He created the Banque de France, which is the uh, still around, and of course at the time was the reason that he was able to get inflation down from 10,000% a year to 6% a year. He was the man who ended the war in the Vendée, this incredibly vicious war that had claimed 40,000 lives, more than were guillotined in the terror, and he ended that uh, that war. He's the man, Napoleon the Great, who is behind the system of prefects in departments. There were departments, of course, before, but he managed to centralise that system with the prefects, which, again, we have today. He set up the Conseil d'État, um, which meets every Wednesday today, um, in, in, uh, able to to vet the laws of France. He managed also to organise the first proper public accounting system, and he also reformed the tax code. He did the things that you need to do in order to make a country work. He set up, ladies and gentlemen, the Légion d'honneur, which is still, quite rightly, coveted by Frenchmen. And he also signed the Concordat, which brought to an end the uh, horrific system of, uh, of discrimination against Christians in the French Revolution, which had led to the desecration of the altars and the deaths of hundreds of nuns and priests. So when his mother, Madame Mare, was asked about, Napole- uh, about Napoleon's achievements, and she said, so long as they last... She was right in a sense, or at least so long as she lasted, she wasn't to know that they have lasted. They have lasted 200 years, and uh, they alone, quite apart from anything to do with fighting or conquests or wars or battles, um, mean that when you vote this evening, uh, you should vote um, you should vote Yes. They seek to destroy the revolution by attacking my person, he said in 1804... ...after an assassination attempt of him, one of of 30 assassination attempts uh, that he survived... Um, uh, I will defend it, for I am the revolution. And this was right. What he did was to save the best bits of the revolution, uh, equality before the law, religious toleration, uh, the abolition of feudalism, and he got rid of the... He just swept away the worst parts, the 10-day um, the calendar, the cult of the supreme being, the, um, and the terror, the, uh, the mass guillotinings. And, in a sense, one can understand why uh, he... ...felt that it was necessary to do all of this... ...and why also the British and indeed the old legitimists... uh, ...the Ancien Régime, old reactionary powers... ...desperately wanted to get rid of him... And uh, it was Spencer Percival, the British Prime Minister, who wrote in a book entitled, catchy title this, uh, The Observations Intended to Point Out the Application of a Prophecy in the 11th Book of David to the French Power. Um, you wouldn't allow, publishers wouldn't allow you to get away with that uh, as a title any longer. Um, and this book, um, this book said that the Bible foretold the death of Napoleon and that the world would end in 1926. Uh, when finally Spencer Percival was assassinated by somebody even more deranged than him uh, in 1812 his mantle as Prime Minister was taken up by Lord Liverpool who was also completely committed to the destruction of Napoleon and it, it was important of course to create this bogeyman figure that uh, Jeremy says was used, quite rightly, was used to scare children but the fact is 200 years later we can now appreciate that, and, that he was a great man, not somebody that needed to be um, used for, uh, for, for propaganda. He also was a man with a great sense of humour, which you don't get in, in Monsters. He was, uh, when at the opera, an escaped lunatic from a lunatic asylum came up and told him that uh, he was in love with the Empress, uh, Napoleon replied, you seem to have chosen a curious person for your confidant. Uh, and when the Archbishop de Rowan um, wrote him a letter on the eve of the coronation saying that he would willingly give his life for Napoleon, uh, Napoleon noted on the, uh, on the letter, pay 12,000 francs to the Archbishop out of the theatrical fund. <laughs> <laughs> And then when all his uh, brothers and sisters were trying to... Um, were, were arguing and complaining about the various principalities and, and uh, countries that they'd been assigned in the Napole- uh, Napoleonic Empire, um, Napoleon shrugged and said, ''You'd have thought that I'd been misappropriating the legacy of our late father, the king.'' He wasn't a warmonger, there were seven wars, that were, um, seven wars of the coalition that were uh, declared against him and he did attack uh, both um, uh, Spain and Portugal in 1807 and 1808 and of course Russia in 1812 two wars that he started against the seven that were declared against revolutionary and Napoleonic France. If you're looking for an inveterate warmonger, you have to go back to the British who were funding all of those seven coalitions to a huge, uh, to a huge degree. And rightly so. He wanted to invade us. We, you know, I'm, I'm delighted that the British won the Battle of Waterloo uh, as an Englishman. It set up the British Empire uh, very nicely after 1815. But it doesn't mean that we still have to be in thrall to to the old propaganda of the, um, of the cartoonists, the caricaturists like Thomas Rowlandson and James Gilray and George Cruikshank that make out this, uh, this man to be a monster. What's more, he didn't have a Napoleon complex. This idea that there was a <laughs> hubristic concept where he had to go around invading uh, countries is completely absurd. The way in which we try to fit his career into hubris versus nemesis, this old uh, ancient Greek dramatic um, conceit, just simply doesn't work. The reason he invaded Russia in 1812 was because he had beaten the Russians twice before. He'd fought in blizzards before. He had the largest army in the history of the world. It was the same size as the whole population of Paris, Twice the size of the Russians. He had no intention of going to Moscow. He wanted to fight within 20 days along the borders of Russia. Uh, he had no idea that uh, typhus was going to kill 140,000 of his men. He had no idea that the Russians were going to fight such a scorched earth policy that they would allow, that they would actually burn down Moscow, or at least three quarters of it. So, uh, And he tried to stop several times on the way to Moscow. As I say, he had no intention of going there when he started that war. And he did know about the winter, um, which is why he allowed himself three weeks to get back to Smolensk. He made a terrible mistake after the Battle of Maloyaroslavets, Um But the idea that he had no concept of the Russian winter is absurd. He'd read Charles Twelfth, the book by Voltaire, and knew perfectly well that it did. So it's not, a, it's not a matter of hubris. He was defeated. But plenty of people have been defeated in history and are still great. Peter the Great lost the Azov campaign. Um, Frederick the Great lost the Battle of Colin. Catherine the Great lost the war against Sweden. Uh, Alfred the Great lost so many battles he spent most of his time in the, uh, in the marshes of Athelney. But it doesn't stop them from being great and neither should it stop Napoleon. He was a great meritocrat Ten of his uh, marshals came from the working classes, it's a fact totally unknown in the history of France up until then. They were the sons of coopers and tanners and bailiffs and innkeepers and millers. Uh, one of them actually um, actually claimed to have had a royal uh, claimed that his father had had a royal appointment, but the royal appointment was in fact uh, the royal mole catcher. Uh, so in a sense, you could actually add him as well and make uh, make eleven of the marshals. Winston Churchill said that Napoleon was the greatest man of action since Julius Caesar. And I believe he's also, his life is a standing rebuke to people who don't believe in the uh, great man theory of history and who think that history is all created, like the Marxists do, by vast impersonal forces. Standing against that, ladies and gentlemen, is the career and life of Napoleon. And um, one of the midshipmen... On HMS Bellerophon, which uh, that uh, Napoleon surrendered to and, uh, and was taken back to uh, to Plymouth, on, in said he showed us what one little human creature like ourselves can accomplish in a span so short, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is so true, and one of the major reasons why tonight you should vote yes. Thank you very much indeed. <clears throat> <coughs>
2: Well now, to make the case that there is no argument for calling Napoleon great, we have another distinguished historian, Adam Zamoyski. His books include the best-selling epic about Napoleon's biggest blunder, although apparently, according to Andrew just now, he couldn't really help himself. Uh, 1812, Napoleon's Fatal March on Moscow and its sequel, Rites of Passage. He's also written The Fall of Napoleon and The Congress of Vienna. His latest book is... Phantom Terror, the Threat of Revolution in the Repression of Liberty, 1789 to 1848. Adam is, as you will deduce from this, about as much of a fan of Napoleon as Nigel Farage is of David Cameron. So, uh, Adam, give us the feet of clay. In fact, give us the whole corpse, really.
1: Well, first of all, I must thank you for this opportunity to lose my virginity at my grand old age. <laughs> um, and, and many thanks to Intelligence Squared um, and, and to Jeremy for chairing this. Um, this is uh, indeed an impressive book. Thank you for quoting from my book, um, although it's slightly out of context. Um, th- this <laughs> <laughs> my words weren't meant as an approval. Um, this book is absolutely marvellous. I picked it up. Andrew very kindly sent me a copy. I picked it up and I opened it, and I said to myself, "Go, he's got nerve putting the author photograph on the end papers. until I, <laughs> until I suddenly realised <laughs> that it, was, it wasn't Napoleon. I then turned to the title page, and I read Andrew Roberts in big capitals, and I thought, oh, who's this book about? And underneath it said Napoleon the Great. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it is a very good book. I recommend it. It's a rattling good read. Um, Made all the more enjoyable if, as you read about Napoleon strutting the European stage and making a frightful nuisance of himself, you superimpose on your mental image of him Andrew's face. (laughs) Seriously, um, Napoleon should have been called the Great. History gave him several unique opportunities to reinvigorate his country, to restore its prosperity and influence, to make it the dominant power on the continent, and to make most of Europe a better place. Instead of which, he messed up. He succeeded in ruining France's position in Europe for several decades, if not the entire 19th century. He hugely built up the power of her greatest enemy, Great Britain. And he provoked a great increase, rise in the power of both Russia and Prussia both of which inflicted, both of which resulted in uh, very unfavorable uh, consequences for Europe and indeed France. Andrew says he was a great man of action. So does Churchill, apparently. And this is always what we hear of him: the, the, the doer, the achiever. Well, one could go on about this, but um, since the subject of virginity came up, funnily enough. In um, 1787, um, the 18-year-old young officer Napoleon decided it was time he lost his. So he sauntered off to the red-light district of Paris, the Palais Royal, and picked up a tart and took her home and um, did his business. The next morning, being the person he was, he wrote the whole episode up, and we have this. Now, the most interesting thing about this account is that it transpires that he had attempted three times before to pick up tarts. Now, excuse me, if a young officer can't pick up a tart, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I don't see that as some mark of the great achiever. In 1793... He went off to Corsica to bring the revolution to his native island. He made such a holics of it that the entire family had to get on board a French ship and be evacuated while their family house was sacked by the angry populace. Um, at the moment, at the crucial moment of the coup d'état of Brumaire, which was to bring him to power, he completely mucked up. He barged into the assembly of the anciens Um, trumpeting, ludicrous phrases about the god of fortune and the god of war march behind me. Everybody laughed him out and he had to retreat retreat out of the door under a hail of abuse, Um, only rescued by a couple of grenadiers. He then marched into the other assembly, where he was beaten up and injected. And he sat around in a state of total dejection, not knowing what to do next. And it was only because his younger brother, Lucien, took the upper hand and sent in the troops that anything came of it. Uh, one could quote endless um, cock-ups of this kind um, in his life. Now, he is usually also thought of as the great military genius. Well, yeah, he did win a few battles. But when you take a close look at the great, the famous ones, you know, Marengo, everybody says, fantastic. Well, he jolly nearly lost that, and the, reason, the only reason he won it was because the Austrian general thought he'd already won it and went home to have lunch. <laughs> and at that moment, Napoleon's reinforcements arrived, and a completely unplanned charge by um, general Kellermann totally flummoxed the Austrians, who all started running. Um, the other great victory at Arcole was a complete nonsense. I mean, he never got on the bridge. Well, there are two accounts. One says he never got on the bridge. The other one says he got on the bridge but fell off it into the, into the bog below. Um, the reason these um, victories were um, perceived as being so great was because he shamelessly roped them up as such, lying through his teeth, Uh, about numbers and um, results. He was the most fantastic spin doctor. Um, You know, even even Austerlitz, his greatest victory, well, you know, it's partly the fact that Kutuzov, his opponent, refused to adopt his own plan and just sat there saying it's all going to be a mess anyway and nothing's going to work. So the Russian forces weren't even being properly directed. And he originally was helped by the fact that he he was up against very old generals commanding armies of an eighteenth century type, which just sort of plodded along, stood in line, shot, and then waited, you know, either to advance or retreat. Whereas he adopted tactics, he encircled them and so on. The point is that they all gradually learnt from him and from their mistakes. He never learnt from his mistakes. He carried on the same old tactics um, with less energy as he grew older. They learned to improve, to bring in new weaponry. Uh, the British famously brought in the rifle. Uh, the Russians brought in extraordinary aiming devices um, to their artillery. He did nothing. He still carried on with the old equipment um, of the 18th century and just threw more men into the breach whenever he needed it. He got sloppy, and that's why he began to lose. And he didn't think um, that tactics that could work in rich countries like northern Italy or southern Germany couldn't work in Spain, where there was no fodder, no forage, no food, no water, anything, or let alone Russia. And he therefore presided over well, the greatest military disaster, really, of of history, which is the Russian campaign. He went to war without any war aims. His war aim, if you put it down to this, was you could liken... He really wanted... He he set off to war with the greatest army anybody's ever collected in Europe in order to try and persuade the other guy to become his ally. You know, it's a bit like um, thinking you're going to get your girlfriend back by going burning down her house and beating her up. Um, he went in with no war aims. He completely ignored Parche Andrew, the climate, kept teasing Koulincourt, who'd spent three years out in Russia, saying, ha-ha, trying to scare us with the Russian winter. It's perfectly nice, look at it, he was saying in, 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 in October. Um, he took no account of that. He wouldn't take the advice of people who told him to shoe his horses. Um, he presided over the greatest military cock-ups in history, not least Waterloo, which he should have won. And, I mean, almost everything he did that day, which Andrew, Andrew himself points out, um, was as though he'd meant to lose it. His diplomacy, his politics, international politics, were no better. At first, he, began, he followed the revolutionary um, theme of exporting the revolution. He then decided to turn to a more um, conventional role. And he followed the traditional French, well, the the pattern set by Louis XIV of the Pacte de Famille, whereby they put Bourbons on the thrones of Spain and Naples, thereby guaranteeing themselves allies. So he put his brothers on thrones, except instead of letting them, become popular in those countries, bring those countries to a state of prosperity and um, efficiency from which they could have helped France. He continually undermined them, um, pulled resources out and turned, succeeded in turning all those um, states into either useless burdens such as Spain or um, states which came out against him, such as Naples under Murat in the end. Um, every single alliance he made he laid down terms which were simply not bearable to the ally, and he just bullied and treated the allies as vassals. As a result, gradually, he was left with not one single ally anywhere, which is not really a very clever way of operating. As for his great achievements in France, the Code Napoléon wasn't written by him. It was written by Cambacérès and a group of other people. Napoleon's only contributions, he'd suddenly come in and, and offer sort of what he thought was common sense. When they were trying to decide whether which of a pair of twins should be regarded as the firstborn, he said, well, it's obvious, isn't it? Um, what went in first comes out second. So the second child out has got to be the firstborn. Yeah. LAUGHTER <laughs> Good Corsican philosophy, no doubt. But, you know, that was his contribution to the Code Napoléon. Mm. Um, yes, he restored law and order, only then to break it in the most fantastically callous way, to trample law. Yes, there was equality before the law, but not if he didn't like you. If he didn't like you, it was worse than the ancien régime. Let de cachet, you were sent off. Um, to Vincennes or, 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 or Guiana or, or, or simply exiled. He, uh, he was a terrible, awful prude and a prig. And he brought this into his awful little small-town morality into public life. You know, some... Official would be seen somewhere with his mistress publicly. He'd say, "This is not possible. You can't be seen like that." He repudiated when uh, Josephine became when he became first consul. He he made her give up all her friends who had a bit of a past. You know, nice girls that she'd been. Well, she had quite a past, and so all her friends were gone off. Um, he was continually sort of um, bringing this 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 um, culture in, and. At the same time, he, in order to gain influence and friends and to reward people, he would give money and position. He was always bribing people. You know, somebody would come along and say, give him some money, give him a position, make him a préfet or something. And what he introduced into French public life was a tremendous sense of um, everything was based on property, on money, and service to the state but all to do based on money and, um, and loyalty to him. And any minister who suggested um, a course of action he didn't agree with would be immediately made to feel his displeasure and very often lose his job for it. Not even for contradicting him, simply saying, when asked as advice, what would you do? You know, and he'd say... I would would do this sire. And if he didn't like the idea, this man was out. Finally, the man. Well, he didn't really have friends. He only had courtiers. Yes, he cried when Lan was killed. He cried when Duroc was killed. But he... um, He didn't really treat any of them as friends. He treated them extremely badly. He would berate senior officers, even marshals, in front of juniors, in the most disgusting way. And he was always, always persecuting um, people. He didn't like, for instance, he was a racist, he didn't like blacks, so General Dumas, a very, very brave general, was sidelined and wasn't allowed to have the Légion d'Honneur because you couldn't give it to a black. Um, He hated women having any influence at all and treated them like that. His his, uh, persecutions of people like Madame de Stael were legendary. First of all, she wasn't allowed to live in Paris because people went to her salon and they talked. And he didn't like them talking because they might talk about him unfavorably. So she was exiled, endlessly exiled. And if anybody went to see her, even when Madame Récamier, passing through Switzerland, went to dropped in on her, she was then penalized and told she had to move out of Paris. Um, unbelievably unpleasant, poor old General Coulacourt, the Grand Equi, was forced to go as ambassador to Russia, which he didn't want to do. He was forced to by an opponent who said, OK, if you go and spend two years there as my ambassador, I will allow you... Because, of course, he wouldn't allow anybody to marry anybody. He had had to give his assent. And he said, I will allow you to marry your mistress, the woman you love, Madame de Canizy. After three years, coulain came back and Napoleon exiled Madame de Canizy from Paris so that they couldn't see each other. Only because kept warning him about the fact that it was not a good idea to invade Russia Napoleon the Great, ladies and gentlemen not to me Napoleon the bungler Napoleon the bully and Napoleon the unbelievably petty thank you very much
2: Well, thank you very much, uh, Adam. I've got some bad news for you, though. The preliminary vote, the vote that people cast before they'd been exposed to your argument, was for the proposition that he should be called the great, 49%. Against it, 24%, but 27% not knowing. So perhaps you'll have persuaded them, but we'll see. Congratulations, Andrew. (laughs) An uninformed audience. Um, well, un- unexposed to your uh, view. No, no, no. Anyway.
0: no, no. no and, uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. And also your view, because in your 2011 book, Empire, what? you call <laughs> Napoleon a despot. He wasn't so, a despot. No, he was Have not he a despot. He... No, no, sorry, this is the moderator, ladies and gentlemen.
2: <laughs> Can you just remind us how he was elected? <laughs>
0: Well, actually, he, he had three great uh, referendum pe- plebiscites that uh, were slightly uh, manipulated. fraudulently <laughs> manipulated. <laughs> but they were manipulated. He actually won by, we have the actual, uh, the proper voting f- uh, figures in the uh, National Archives. The great thing is that um, he won about 80%, but claimed 95%. Now, that is <laughs> obviously outrageous and disgraceful and despicable, but he still won 80%
1: of those who dared to vote.
2: Does
0: the word "coup" mean anything to you? Yes, <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. It certainly does. And the a coup br- and the br- you your and book? he ca- and he came and he yes, of course, he came to power in a, in a military coup. And thank God he did, because look at all the wonderful things he did for France. Whereas if you try to change the French constitution, in hang on, please, in um, in uh, 1799, it would take three years. It had to go through both houses of parliament and be passed three years, three times. So you actually had to have and then have a plebiscite. So you actually took nine years That's to change an argument, the constitution. He, it's, was it's, the great it, or no, star it is not. It is absolutely great. not. What it is is an argument for having somebody who is able to cut through all that red tape and actually get things done.
2: Adam, is there nothing you
1: admire about this man? Oh no, I, uh, I was I was brought up rather admiring him, and I always thought, um, you know, there was something very sort of dashing about him. Uh, but the more one. He was
2: very short to dash, really, wasn't he? No. Although he when he was wasn't. young, he
1: was sort of quite sexy in a way, but you know, know. Um, this is so long. He wasn't a he short was,
0: ass. No, he was not a short ass. He was five was foot it six. Than you? He was exactly my height, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> I, well,. Uh, when I was making this BBC TV series, I, I actually, when nobody was looking in, in the room in which he died, I lay on his deathbed. Um, and, uh, and my feet just touched the end of the, of the bed. He's exactly the same height. The, people, the reason people think that he's tiny is because of all those caricaturists um, who all, constantly made him minute against huge John Bull figures and George III figures. He was, he was the exact average age for a
1: Frenchman of his time. No, I mean, the people were always remarking that he was of small stature. Only tall. And he was very puny.
2: (laughs) 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 Okay, apart from his stature, is there anything you
1: admire about him? Um, (laughs) He 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 was capable of acts of generosity. He did do some very. Um, you know, he 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 did won, win some extraordinary battles. He did do some things, he was but you a military know, genius but hardly great. Respects, you he? know, no, he wasn't a military genius. A military He genius. was rubbish at sea, but he was. No, yeah, military genius doesn't take half a million men off into the middle of nowhere and get them all slaughtered, well, massacred, would. or die of disease, he, and he and then and that. bring we himself we, down. We well, you know, you may not m- mean to do something, but if a you gen- you're a genius. You um, you make sure that you know what you're doing before he you got, set off. Look, he got defeated. That's, that, it doesn't
0: stop you, as I mentioned earlier all these other people who were who still called the great who got defeated, but he won 46 of his 60 battles and that is an astonishing achievement in, for anyone uh, yes, of course, the ones that really mattered the ones at the end, the Battle of Waterloo uh, he lost and he, was, and he deserved to lose as I, meant, as I say in the book he, uh, that was a, a series of, of blunders the really we,
1: important ones, he didn't win and that's the trouble by the
0: way, when you <laughs> criticise Marengo, um, my, that that is completely outrageous when you say and then reinforcements happen to arrive who asks for the reinforcements you know he did he went from that moment that he realized the attack the austrian attack was taking place at nine thirty in the morning he sent out the demands to uh Desai to return to the battle and he, they did it at the key and decisive moment so it's not fair really to uh, to slag off 46 victories and make such a fuss of seven defeats
2: how many deaths do you think he should have on his conscience
0: all of the ones in, in Russia... That's half a million. Um, ..which is half a million, but not but not the three and a half million that died in the Napoleonic Wars in wars that were declared on him or his allies. So a mere com- half million. Compared to the se- the, yeah, a seventh of the number of people yes, there's who also, died. There's,
1: there's also a million. small detail of the hundreds of thousands of civilian deaths as a result of the Russian campaign. Um, and indeed, of civilian deaths in, in in France as a result of the. Oh, speaking of the, um, the the battles in France, when you say that
0: he, I think I've got the exact quote um, here. <laughs> um, you say that um, that uh, as he got. As he got on and as he got slower, he got worse and worse and worse. What about the four victories in five days in the 1814 yeah. campaign? That was one of the great campaigns in history. It's as good as anything he did in Italy 20 years earlier. He was not getting worse, he was just getting fewer soldiers. He had 70,000 against 350,000. He
1: was just getting sloppy and lazy. He had the more soldiers than anybody had ever had in Russia. And look what a mess he made.
0: I'm talking it. about the 1814 campaign. Yes. You've got to admit that well, that was one of the best... Because he very few
1: soldiers, he actually woke up and did something for him. But it was a bit late... And and also, you know, the military genius. He he, he left all those garrisons sitting sitting in, in, in Poland and, and Prussia. Um, and you know, when he started the eighteen uh, thirteen campaign, he said, "I've got four hundred thousand men," except. 200 of them were sitting in fortresses from Danzig down to Zamorch. Which he believed he was going to be able uh, well,
0: to relieve the... Uh, the after uh, the Battle of Dresden in 1813, he had every chance of, of relieving those men, and then he'd have had an extra 200,000, and what would he have been able well, to do with that? he had
1: every about? chance, but he didn't have a chance.
0: No, because he? Well, he, no, he lost the Battle of Leipzig, yeah, exactly. you, know. if you look, One of his seven the... defeats, you know. Oh, dear, what a shame. Never mind. <laughs>
2: Perhaps it would be a good idea not to fight them, then.
0: <laughs> what well, so let's when in, say, let's let's go through that it's so not to fight the all so, sixty or what ha- No, but <laughs> there they're fought, they're to get, if he's invaded or his allies invaded, as in the War of the Third Coalition in 1805, what's he supposed to do, just sit back and allow that to happen? Of course was not. he wasn't He was not, you see, despot, menace, you know, this is the moderator. He was, <laughs> he was so not a menace to anyone. He never went to war oh, with anyone. Really? Between 1800 and 1805, throughout the entire consulate, he, first consulate, he did not go to war with anyone and what happened, the Austrians? invaded and attacked Bavaria, his ally.
1: Because he was a menace. Well, it's because, he was at, uh, because he was taking over Spain and Italy and, and, and dominating half of Europe and ruining everybody with his wretched blockade. People were, you know... People Who
0: started the blockade? The British with the orders in council. That also, the yes, protectionism that he, ultimately did bring him agreed, down. But he, of, he
1: didn't have to do tit for tat. You don't always have to, because
0: you know you you fight a protectionist war by just by just um, allowing them to put um, tariffs on your business, and then you do nothing to their trade whatsoever. Come on, when's that ever happened? Let's
2: look at something beyond military, though. Yes, you would accept, wouldn't you, that this man's legacy in terms of science, in terms of urban planning, in terms of the law, these this is significant.
1: In terms of um, science, uh, I think it had very little to do with him. It was, a, it was the legacy of the revolution. He promoted it. Massive. He promoted it. Whoever would have been ruling France would have promoted it. It was a, you know, it was a movement that had started. Well, not the necessarily. Revolution I don't think the would have gone anywhere. A, um, the the, the uh, revolution had unleashed such talent and such energy that that was one thing. As for the law... All it created was the bossiest, most awful, control-freak system of government, which, which we in, in, this, in Europe are now sort of fighting with at every... Um, you yeah. know, he created something that generates bureaucracy and regulation. Um, Fantastic. And, you
0: know, He's now to blame for the European Union, which wasn't well, set up until 100 years after well, he died. You've just been saying that and Europe has obeyed, embraced his wonderful I Can system. we go back to science and... Uh, science yeah. and, uh, and the, other. The, the fact is that he he was the one who set up the great scientific prizes. He was the one who, uh, for the first time in French history, gave scientists, made scientists into into important people in society, gave them peerages. You know the first scientist that we ever made a peer in this country? Lord Kelvin in 1896. The first artist who ever got a peerage was Lord Leighton in 1892. The first poet he 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 made these great men uh, into great men, and the first poet in this country was Tennyson in 1884. Why that is such ridiculous. A fan of it's because it's a way of thanking people. They, oh, by the way, he brought in life peerages, which we didn't do in this country till 1958. That's good, is it? Yes, it's a it's a way of. Well, what you prefer the hereditary version that we had in this country well, at the some time? Some of
2: us Democrats, you know. <laughs>
0: The point is that he unleashed so much human potential through his belief in meritocracy that he is definitely worthwhile. It's astonishing this debate is taking place. He, of course... <laughs> 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 he, of course, is, uh, uh, deserves the title The Great.
1: Some of the arguments are certainly astonishing. You would have found him absolutely... You know what he used to do, his, his idea of um, thinking it was a nice thing to do? He'd take somebody and pinch their ear or their nose or their cheeks until blood ran. And that was, just, you know, it was like giving somebody a friendly pat. And they were all standing there with sort of tears pouring down their face, with blood running down, terrified, because, you know, if they said, look, look, matey, don't do this, please, they might find themselves, um, you know, they'd be losing their jobs or be sent... Sent off to. You, I mean, absolutely, he was, not he was absolutely not what happened. Not what happened.
0: When he used to tug people's ears and squeeze their noses, they. And, and we, we have this no, in, so many, in, yes. so many di- in so many. So in so many different. In so many, many different. Oh, yes, to. there are. There are accounts, and, and, and one of them is in my book, where the guy comes away and shows his his men after the parade. He goes, Look, the emperor, this is what the emperor did to me. I, Just, I, well, I, 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 I know. He loves me. He knows me. He no, was a, know, never went to blood. Show me a single place where there's blood. a culture of sycophancy. That is quite disgusting. Not in the slightest. No, no. Oh, he was a genuinely charismatic figure, and they and they uh, quite. Literally adored working with him. His friends. When you said he didn't have friends, what an outrageous remark to make! You didn't. <laughs> you didn't make. You didn't mention uh, Bessière. You didn't mention Desai. He had plenty of people he was able to to um, to be friendly with. The drawback was, of That's course, was the that they all died style. in battle. All four of them um, died in, uh, in in battle. And so, yeah, as his life went on, he had fewer and fewer friends. But it doesn't mean that he was incapable of the concept of friendship.
2: What about his incompetence with women?
0: <laughs> well, um, he himself claimed to have had six or seven mistresses. I've named 22 uh, in that. So if that's incompetence,
1: hey. <laughs> right, yes, this... I mean, there weren't mistresses 22. I mean, there were girls he slept with because he'd come along and say, come along, I'm emperor, you know, and he'd give them one. But, I mean, you know, <laughs> that's not exactly a mistress. Yeah, he was, he was much loved by... Um, by two um, very stupid women—women, um, uh, Marie Louise, his second wife, and um, and Marie Walewska, his and Josephine
0: wife. wasn't the brain of Britain. She didn't really she?
1: love no, him. No,
0: no, she just, no. Yeah. yeah, no, that's true. She didn't really love him. It's a much more complex story than the kind of Romeo and Juliet um, love story that much more complex and much more interesting and much more human, in my view, as well.
2: Right, let's have, um, let's have some contributions from the floor. If, you, if you'd like to ask either of our uh, speakers a question or two, please feel free to do so, or if you want to direct your question to both of them, then, then do so. So um, let's have some, a show of hands. Who'd like to get... get yes, down here in this, this block over here, please. Chap, chap in the white shirt with his hand up. And then should we have somebody over here? Anyone over here want to ask a question?
1: Somebody that uh, he's
2: just pointing. No, this chap, there's a chap here with his hand up holding a program. So you go first, sir.
1: I just wondered how um, Andrew would argue away the uh, 3,000 prisoners he had executed in the Middle East.
0: Uh, I said, sur- well, yes. which was, which was oh, yes. considered
3: a, a war crime even in those days. And we'll
2: take the other one here as well. Yeah,
3: how he got to. S- stage one where was he born how did he get to be the general that he was or uh, could we have some background on that
2: well I think there's a probably have you got one up there should we have a a third one while we're at it and then we'll Uh,
3: my question is for, for, for Adam in particular Adam to what extent was Napoleon Berthier's glove puppet
2: Okay, let's start off with you, Andrew. Uh, You better give us a bit. A bit of backstory to start with, perhaps, on Uh, his childhood. Oh, right, yes.
0: Uh, Well, born on the Mediterranean island of uh, Corsica, he came from that interesting penumbra between the upper middle class and the lower upper class. He was like a uh, sort of Highland clan chief family. But they didn't have any money. Um, They were officially noble, but um, but they had to actually get that uh, confirmed. He went to school in mainland France because his father had confirmed him as noble and had a fantastic education at Brienne um, Military Academy and then at the École um, Militaire in Paris. And then after that, he, he followed the career of an army officer whilst also at the same time getting involved in Corsican politics, which, as Adam quite rightly pointed out, he was very bad at. And uh, they got the, the whole family got chased off the island in 1793. What Adam didn't mention also happened in 1793 a few months later was that he commanded the uh, Artillery at the siege of Toulon, and in a brilliant um, uh, immediate aperçu, as soon as he went up to the, uh, to the top of the Eaglet above the, of the uh, heights of Toulon, he saw how, if you captured a particular battery, you were able to force the British out of the uh, harbour, which he managed to do.
2: Adam, you take your question, um,
1: then. Berthier, it's, it's difficult to tell. I mean, Napoleon all the ideas came from Napoleon. Berthier did put order in things, and he, he was the workhorse, I'd say, of the entire um, military machine. But I don't think... Um, as far as I'm concerned, I've never had seen any evidence of Berthier taking or even suggesting major um, strategic uh, initiatives. So I don't think that he was... Um, he is a glove puppet, I would say that certainly not. Uh, um, on, on this question of the origins, um, Napoleon was, of course, famously insecure about the whole business because the reason he was allowed to, 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 to go to, um, got the placement at a French military school, um, was because his father became extremely close with the French governor of Corsica. Um, the Comte de Marbeuf, um, who uh, and basically stuffed um, Napoleon's mother into Marbeuf's bed. Um, and, uh, Napoleon, Absolutely
0: no evidence for that. Um, there's uh, huge know. amounts of evidence. No, no there is not. And
1: Napoleon, no believable himself, evidence. And the proof of which, Andrews as you no, should know, no. Napoleon himself several times said to people that he didn't know whether he was his father's son or Marbeuf's. No, he, and, um, he, no, he did say no, that. no, he did not say that. He did say so, that to several He said it to Morges, no, he was, for instance. It, not least, he was... And so um, <laughs> he, he was quite insecure about that. <laughs> um, and it, it, the other thing was that he started off with this great romantic idea of Corsica as an oppressed nation, which he longed to sort of liberate... Um, uh, first as a sort of lieutenant of, of the Corsican patriots, Pasquale Paulis, and then to sort of take over. And then when that didn't work, then he decided that Corsica must become part of France. And he, he, while he was still at school, he kept saying, I'm Corsican, I'm Corsican, I hate France. And when he suddenly realised that power lay in France, and that was where the future was, he became French, and that's, that's really all. He, he then identified himself with the French state, the French revolutionary state.
0: It's not when he um, actually thought that that's where the power lay. It was when he'd done his reading and understood the importance of France yes, and the Enlightenment well, and his own belief in uh, Enlightenment concepts and reading of Rousseau that he came intellectually over to appreciate that he had, that, that Corsica was a, um, a, uh, a cause he believed in but was not as important as the wider picture.
2: Andrew, do you want to deal with this question of his war crimes?
0: Yes, yes, very much. I, I mean, I, I, I rather fear that some people might uh, mistake uh, the idea that this book is a hagiography that doesn't uh, ever criticise him. He wa- of course it does, and the worst thing he did was to um, order the massacre of 3,000 prisoners of war after the Battle of Jaffa in March of, uh, of 1799. Um, these guys had surrendered to him uh, earlier in the campaign in, um, uh, when they were captured at El Arish in what is now the Gaza Strip. And, he, um, and, and they gave their promise, their parole, not to fight again, and then they did and were captured. Now, of course, morally, it was a monstrous thing to do, but I would take issue with the gentleman who said that it, um, it counts as a war crime because under the actual terms of Middle Eastern conflict at that time, if you give your parole and then break it, your life is forfeit. It was the wrong thing to do, it was a terrible thing to do, It's a monstrous um, moral crime, and uh, and he was a ruthless man. But that doesn't mean, any more than the things that Peter the Great, or Catherine the Great, or Frederick the Great did, that he should be um, stripped of the title he deserves.
1: I'm, I'm a bit... I'm um, worried by this Some comparison with Catherine the Great and Frederick the Great. The only reason they were called great was because they paid all those licks journalists like Voltaire who <laughs> flattered them. Um, and, you know, <laughs> a, you know I, I don't think th- it's, it's really relevant to bring those people in. Um, but I will here add also the French um, under Napoleon did treat their prisoners of war far better than the British did. Um, right,
2: there's... Um Let's have you, you gentlemen there with your hand up. And anybody else over here want to have a go? Yes, Let's give it to the lady with the glasses there and about the fifth row back, please. Could, yes, go ahead.
3: Could I please ask both speakers, what was uh, Napoleon's primary political objective? We've heard all sorts of things about all sorts of his achievements or otherwise, but what was his primary
2: politi- uh, political objective? Okay, and we'll take that and we'll take the, the, the
3: lady over oh. there
1: didn't uh, the abolition of primogeniture by the code Napoleon result in a far lower birth rate in France which subsequently caused problems with their wars with Prussia and Germany
2: right should we have one more while we're at it yes let's have one over here Uh, could you just give the microphone to the chap Oh, we'll come back to you sorry to the chap with his hand up there well done you're passing it along to him now there we are uh,
1: to both of you, militarily, who would you consider Napoleon's finest marshal?
2: Right, that's three things to discuss. Uh, what was his primary objective, do you think, Andrew? <laughs>
0: I think his primary objective was a... Well, obviously, um, uh, French hegemony in Western Europe. He was, never, he was never attempting to rule the world. He was never attempting to rule all of Europe either, but he did want to ensure that uh, he was not going to be in any kind of, um, of uh, military or strategic danger from Austria, Prussia or Russia. Um, I think that he also wanted to put the most key... Um, parts of the of the Enlightenment into as many countries as he was able to, and Adam was absolutely right that the uh, the, the, the brothers of his were pretty uniformly useless as uh, as kings, but the reason was not that he bullied them so uh, so much was that because com- they were constant wars they were Wars that were, as I mentioned, uh, started by the legitimist and ancien regime powers, not wars that he wanted.
2: What do you think his primary objective was?
1: Um, I don't think he knew that well himself. I think he meant well to begin with, and he meant he wanted order, and he he, he wanted he wanted to act. He wanted, I think, to um, to 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 rule and control, and I think there is an element of the sorcerer's apprentice about the whole enterprise, that, you know, he, he would um, embark on one thing, and then it would lead to another, and then he would, and this is, I think, his greatest fault, is that he lost sight of what he was doing a lot of the time, and, you know, by 1810, uh, know, 11, um, he is annexing You know, he says, oh, I'll have Oldenburg as well. And, yeah, let's get Hanover in here, you know, part of the French Empire. Yeah, and let's bring in Tuscany. And, you know, he didn't stop to think, what is my aim? And, like, going into Russia, he had no war aim. He didn't know what he was doing. He didn't prepare for... You know, if you're going to go and try and do something about Russia, you say, right, you tell the Turks, who are currently at war with Russia, that that they should carry on fighting and say you'll help them. You tell the Swedes who have just had Finland taken off them by Russia, you say, look, we'll help you, you know, you fight there and we'll help you take Finland back. No, he just sort of barged in happily without thinking of the consequences. And, you know, and and that was the trouble. It sort of went on and on and it it became a great sort of roller coaster. And I think, I don't think he ever had a real um, objective. Um, And uh, certainly not a not a finite one or a, or a, a, a completely, um, you know, it certainly wasn't thought out. And, and I, don't, you know, I don't believe he sort of started out saying, oh, I want to rule the world, or I want to trample everybody underfoot. That wasn't it. Um, he wanted to make his way in life. They all did, these, this, these poor Corsicans, they were terribly keen on money making, you know, a future for themselves, creating an establishment. Um, but, you know, so there was a personal um, thing, but the political drive was was rarely to restore order. And then things began to evolve. Um, and, and you know, the way that I'm, I'm sure that in 1799, it never entered his mind to become emperor or anything. But that suddenly became the obvious thing to do. And there was a sort of horrible logic to it, as there as there often is.
2: Adam, who do you think was his finest marshal?
1: I would say probably
2: Davout. Um, and what do you think, Andrew?
0: Undoubtedly Davout. Right.
2: And do you want to deal with this question oh. of the abolition... We've agreed on of... something.
0: <laughs> <laughs> probably well, by mistake.
2: I <laughs> Damn, I still not agree any <laughs> on anything. <laughs> it's too easy. Um, what about the abolition of primogeniture?
0: Um, well, obviously, if the Code Napoleon um, had nothing to do with Napoleon, it can't be blamed on him. Um, but, uh, uh, but Adam is wrong about that. Uh, that. He, pres- he presided over uh, well over half of the meetings that uh, set up the Code Napoleon, and when I say presided, he had something to say about absolutely everything, and he also provided, most importantly, Adam's absolutely right when he says that Cambaceres was the, um, was the intellectual force behind it, but Cambaceres had been trying to get a code, a revision of the legal code, into French law since um, the French Revolution broke out. And nothing had happened for 15 years. What it needed, 10 years, sorry, what it needed, 15 by the time it got through, was a driving political force willing to cut the Gordian knot. And that's what Napoleon was. Now, with the question of primogeniture. Uh, which he himself, of course, had, his family had benefited from um, because that was the only way that they'd managed to keep their estates together in uh, in um, in Corsica, um, yes, I think it's a, uh, I think it's a, a, a very bad idea. I've always been against primogeniture. I'm the eldest um, brother, and uh, my younger brother, who's in the audience here, isn't, is is shaking his head. But there we are. The um, uh, the fact is that primogeniture is a way in Britain, certainly, that you kept estates together and you um, sent the youngest and poorest people uh, off to the um, off to the off to the wars. But um, I think to blame. Um, um, to blame Napoleon for the, um, uh, what has been blamed, things that happened literally a century after his uh, death, um, such as the, the rise of German nationalism at the time of the First World War, really is going too far. And I think the case is, uh, is the same for Primogenita.
1: Right. I, I wasn't I'm talking about the rise of German nationalism in the First World War, but in um, 1813, Um, Well, why was that that such a bad thing?
0: Um, It's it's only when it gets nasty in 1914 that we have to be, or at least 1870, that there's a big problem. It
1: was quite nasty because it was provoked in a very, very nasty way by Napoleon because he went around humiliating Germany in every conceivable way. The other thing we haven't talked about mean mentioned is is his appalling, um, uh, through censorship of the most vicious kind, his appalling effect on French letters. He basically um, shut up two generations of, 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 of French literature.
0: We are wildly, um, wildly hypocritical about this. The Lord Chancellor had the right and ex- exercised the right to um, to censor theatrical productions in this country until 1968. He did it... we get, get, get Arthur Miller's plays, Pindarello's plays... <laughs> Well, pretty much all the anti-government uh, newspapers. About and the 60 fa- newspapers. Yeah, and how much, how much genuine... It's wartime. How much genuine um, uh, freedom of the press was there in this country, in the Second World War? When Winston Churchill said that um, the truth needs to be protected by a bodyguard of lies, he understood exactly what Napoleon yeah, but, was trying but, to but do.
1: Andrew, it, <laughs> wasn't a of the, it wasn't a question of political things. You know, Madame de Star wrote a book about German literature. You know, it had to be confiscated and burnt. The manuscript was pursued by the police. I the mean, way in which the
0: way in which you're t- treating him, like he's a uh, Madame de Stael, uh, was was sent into internal exile. It is hardly a police state when you have one policeman in for every one thousand five hundred and ten Frenchmen. In Britain today, we have one policeman for every four hundred and fifty Britons. Does that make us a police state? No. No, so I didn't
2: think. Um, internal exile is a characteristic of a police state, isn't
0: it? Jolly sight better than than being put in prison. At least she was able to live in her vast and beautiful mansion on the uh, Lake Geneva, well, the, plenty, ca- plenty the plenty Lake people Coppe. In prison. Yeah. yeah. Oh fewer. No, no, no. No. That's not that's not the case. The ancien regime and the French Revolution imprisoned more people than Napoleon.
2: Right, let's have some more questions. Yes, I'm sorry, I should took the microphone away from you. In, in one, two, three, the fourth row back, the lady in with the black hair in black. and, and and then you can give it to... You've had your hand up in front, just in front of you. And let's have, let's have a question right at the back there. Um, you put your hand down now. Now, you, yes, you. You, waving your arm around. with. It, 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 what colour's your shirt? Blue. The man in the blue shirt underneath the... He hath put a new song in my mouth. Even praise unto the Lord. Right.
1: And there's there's somebody Uh, feeling excluded
2: there. OK, have we got another microphone we can send over there in a second? Yes, we can. Right, you go first, then, please.
3: Thank you. May I ask both historians, as historians, is it right that we should judge
0: Napoleon or indeed anyone from the past by today's standards? I mean, how how should we set this debate? Because it strikes me that the things that have been listed against him, sort of courtiers, banishing people who are out of favour... Military casualties, all the rest were very much of the time and how people behaved at that time, and yet his virtues and the good things he did stand the test of time and were really forward thinking. And also, Adam Zamoyski, who do you admire from the past? Following on from that question, is there anyone who, who's perfect enough?
2: Right. Yes, you, sir, at the back. Yes, you both um, uh, luckily agreed on who was um, his greatest general but as a master politician and a diplomat, I'd love your views on how you felt Talion contributed. Okay, and um, yes, go on.
3: Um, this is a question for Andrew. Um, what do you think Napoleon's most likable trait was? Have we got a microphone over here now? Yes. Yes, sir. From Adam's description, uh, you wouldn't expect um, Napoleon's return, on Napoleon's return from Elba, that he would gather uh, sufficient men uh, to command a force to restore his power to do whatever the the rest of the um, events that happened until his demise. You also wouldn't expect um, the... The journey of his body to be lined with people of France from the coast back into Paris Uh, apparently a a continual line of uh, people on both sides of the river as his barge with his body um, came back to Paris and also that Wellington insisted that he wasn't executed when the, I understand the other uh, allies uh, were very much in favour of that
2: OK, you might as well deal with that first, Andrew.
1: Yes. Um, the, um, the return from Elba, there are several things. Uh, first of all, he wasn't greeted. In southern France, he had to avoid the cities until he reached Gren- Grenoble because he was actually... Um, uh, he met with hostility. Um, thereafter, it was a very mixed picture because, and people were jumping both ways. It was a very tricky moment. And the reason it was a tricky moment was because... You must remember one thing, is that the Bourbons came in and made themselves unbelievably unpopular, and particularly with the army. What's more, in the interim, while he'd been in Elba, all the prisoners had returned from Russia. All the ones who'd spent the last five, six, sometimes eight years in British hulks returned. And they were all still... They they, they couldn't see the... They didn't see the sort of decline of France in 1812-13 and they didn't feel the same way as most of the population of France which was just sick of the rising taxes um, the endless conscription um, and the increasingly bossy government Um, and so there there was a huge new army ready to for him to, 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 to take up as for the return of his ashes in 1840 it was a propaganda thing by then you know, two generations of romantic poets and writers had created the Napoleonic myth which was something that is magnificent and, and, and completely irrelevant um, to, to the truth um, it has no bearing with it and there was a desire for something great because everybody was bored under Louis Philippe um, and so that explains nothing. And as for um, Wellington's um, uh, generosity in this case, that's, um, uh, you know, hats off to him for it. Right. Um, th- this uh, lady asked me um, about uh, My, <laughs> whom before, I admire. Before you answer yes. that,
2: uh, um, yes, do tell uh, us I, in a I, second, I'm, but I'm, just before yes, you okay. do that, <laughs> uh, you have the opportunity to vote now. If you believe that Napoleon it should be called the great, you insert... The thing that says for the black card into the box that's coming around. And if you don't think he should be you to considered to be great, you having torn it in half, you put the white bit against. And if you still can't make up your mind, <laughs> despite the vehemence of the arguments we've heard this <laughs> evening, you put both bits in. You, you. Or you can just smart Liberal Democrat,
1: if you like. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, okay, so who who do you admire, then, Adam? I admire lots of people, but none of them are called the great. Um, And, um, I mean, there are things (laughs) I do admire about Napoleon in the end, you know. You can't not. But... um, not the great you know I mean there are things you admire about some pretty foul people and you know uh, somebody was asking about the role of Talleyrand. Talleyrand was the most frightful um, sleazy traitor who brought down I mean he was absolutely frightful and yet I hugely admire him because of his intelligence Um, and you know I, I think that I don't I simply don't believe in wonderful great people I think you know some people do better or worse things, and Napoleon did do some quite decent things, but they're far outweighed in the historical context by, um, I think, his, his, what he did long-term. The fact was that he, he really <clears throat> eclipsed France. You know, whether it was his fault, whether it was unfair, who attacked him, it didn't matter. You know, he came to power in 1799. He put France back, um, brought back a prestige... He then bungled everything to such an extent that France really became not quite a second-rate power, but was not the main player in Europe, and she should have been, and Europe would would have been a far better place had she been. And um, he strengthened the tyrannies of the East, Prussia, Russia, and Austria, um, which um, created, um, as if you read my book you'll see, um, <laughs> um, a, a sort of prison house of half of Europe. Um, can and, and it, right, sorry, can, I, can I, I
0: say a few words before everyone's voted? <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> which
0: is that Adam's absolutely right that, um, that um, Talleyrand was a sneaky little weasel. Um, who who financially uh, um, uh, bettered himself, who uh, betrayed France, as you say, for money uh, most of the time. But we all love him because he was witty. Well, um, there are plenty of people who are witty. And one of the the questions was uh, from the lady in the front there said, what, was it, um, what were Napoleon's um, nicest traits or best traits? I think his sense of humour is is uh, something that took me by surprise. Really, he, Tell us a uh, Napoleon joke. I've given you. Th- <laughs> <laughs> I told you. I told you three actually in the course of my. my, uh, <laughs> uh, my okay, uh, the, the um, it, sort of cool joke that he came out with at the Battle of Wagram um, uh, when one of his aides de cons had his uh, had his hat his his uh, shako um, shot off by a cannonballs uh, was uh, which might imply that he was a small man. Um, <laughs> said uh, said um, g- yeah, good sh- good job you're no taller. <laughs> um, but to make jokes during a battle is amazing He actually went to sleep for 15 uh, minutes uh, In the middle of the Battle of Vagram Where there are a thousand cannons on both sides going off And there's extraordinary calmness and coolness uh, to this man which, um, which took me by surprise There are 50 or 60 Napoleonic jokes uh, in this book And um, it's, an aspect, <laughs> it's an aspect of him I wasn't, uh, Spread I wasn't expecting was over
2: 900 pages <laughs>
0: It's hard going, isn't it? <laughs> Not the reading of it, fortunately. <laughs> uh... And um, the very intelligent question from, uh, from the gentleman over there um, about uh, Elba, it um, it's quite wrong to say that nobody uh, welcomed him into, before Grenoble. Um, actually, at Lafri, he had a regiment um, fling themselves on him, and in, in um, one of the other um, villages, they, sorry, towns, I think it was sisteron they actually, the common people of France, just of, of the town anyway, just pulled down the gates and smashed them up and gave him bits of the gates to show that they didn't want him to be kept out of Sistron. So, you know, it's not fair. He's absolutely right when he says that the Bourbons ruined everything and screwed everything up in ten months. But nonetheless, that wasn't the only reason that people welcomed him back in 1815.
2: What about this point that was made very early on, this very interesting point about the standards by which you judge whether someone's entitled to be considered great or not? Are they the standards of today or the standards of the time? You're argue, you've argued a relativism by right the way through your presentation.
0: Um, no, I believe in both. I believe he was great both by the standards of the day and by the standards of today. But I don't believe that, um, that really uh, history makes that much sense if you constantly just see it through the prism of the present day. And the fact is that we have seen um, Napoleon wrongly through the prism of the Second World War again and again. He's presented, especially by British historians, as a kind of proto-Hitler who um, was uh, was a you know totalitarian monster? He wasn't. You have to see him through the um, actual prism of the day. And, he would have been um, a fan
2: of the European Union,
3: oh. though, wouldn't he? Yes, oh. except oh, the, you, you, you. Andrew.
1: Andrew, Andrew. Well, you know, because and and the European in his Union. Day he was regarded as the ogre, as, oh, as a sort of cheerleader... By the
0: people who were fighting against him, but you don't have to subscribe well, yeah, because, to politi- political because propaganda because 200 of years Europe. later. He was
1: at war with everybody, so of course they were. He had
0: the, lo- sorry, the largest attack that ever took place in the history of the Napoleonic Wars was when he had 21 states on his side going into is, Russia. Not, I know what happened there, but the fact is it was a bigger coalition than any that fought against
1: him. And, the, by the way, just at the time, um, in the late 1800s, um, in the, you know, around 1808 onwards, um, French women used to scare their children with the idea that the ogre was coming kind of going to come and eat them. Napoleon. So it wasn't just the English.
0: Well, obviously none of the women that made up the um, one million people who lined the route. One million people? You've just written off as mere propaganda, I think, was your work. Well... It's, it's not mere propaganda, is it? When uh, a a something like a quarter of the whole of Paris turns up to see this great man yeah, in Yeah, because turn. there was a
1: great spectacle and there was a feast and they'd all forgotten it. Sorry, it was, if it, they were
0: trying to scare their children, why did they turn was, up in the streets? Yes,
1: because no, he was no longer a threat. He was dead. There was a whole lot of ashes in there. <laughs> and look, you know, look what happened. And people do. People are ridiculous. Look what happened when Stalin died. Everybody came out even in the dominated countries, conquered countries of East New York came out and cried in the street. I mean, you know, people do these things because it's a mass movement. It doesn't mean that, you know, they all thought he was wonderful. (laughs) Well, I don't mind. If a million people
0: come to my funeral, I'm going to take
1: it as a compliment. (laughs) You may have to wait for a long time.
2: (laughs) Right, would you chaps like now to make a final presentation for three or four minutes about uh, as to why people should have already voted the way (laughs) you want them to vote? (laughs) So, Adam, I think you should go first, really, shouldn't
1: you? Why he should not be considered great. Well, I suppose i have to. um, I have to... um, Since you've all now voted, um, I have a little secret, um, which is that I've been commissioned to write a book about Napoleon as well. (laughs) And I'm... Pretty confident that um, it will be different in tone to the tone I've taken this evening. <laughs> um, <laughs> the fact is. The cat's um, got to eat. <laughs> <laughs> The fact is that Napoleon was, and I think this is where Andrew's so totally wrong, is Napoleon was a very, very remarkable individual. And the point about him was that he didn't come from nowhere. He came out of a great ferment created by the French Revolution, which itself was the fruit of the Enlightenment. And when the Revolution, as it were, hit the buffers by 1799, most intelligent people in France just realized this cannot go on. And everybody wanted some kind of a different, a third way. They couldn't restore the, the, the monarchy because, well, you only had to look at Louis XVIII. Um, and anyway, you couldn't go back. It wouldn't have worked. You couldn't, the republic just wasn't going to go on. So they needed something else. Um, And it wasn't Napoleon who came along and said, hello, there's me. A group of people like Cambaceres, Roderay, CS and so on, said, look, we've got to change the constitution, create a presidential republic with a strong executive power. To do this, we need a general. You always need a general um, to lead the Praetorian Guard. They chose Napoleon. They thought he would be a bit of an acolyte. He very cleverly realised that it wasn't going to work, it was just going to be a talking shop, and he very quickly muscled them out of the way and took over. And I believe that but he kept them, all of those who were prepared to collaborate, he kept on board, and he made, went out of his way to keep a lot of those, even those who didn't like him, who were more left-wing than his, him, or more right-wing, more royalist, to keep them on board, because I think the whole point was that the people who created Napoleon, um, who put him in power, uh, wanted... It was, a, it was a joint enterprise. And the reason that... You know, it's extraordinary. One minute, they, they suddenly decide there must be a consulate for life, because otherwise, if he gets killed by some assassination attempt... And by the way, Pitt's government was quite outrageous, paying people to assassinate him like and centre. You know, the whole thing would fall apart. And then the consulate for life didn't seem good enough because you needed continuity. What would happen if he got killed? So out came the idea of an empire. And they didn't think of the empire because it was grander than a monarchy, than a kingship. But simply they couldn't call him king because there had been the Bourbons and it wouldn't look right. Whereas the empire, and he was emperor of the French Republic, so the idea was Caesarian. It was they were going back. This was the age of Neoclassicism. They were going back to Rome, and this, and that is why all these, as he says, these cafe owner's sons were suddenly told that they were prince of this and duke of that, and that they had to call him sire and, and stand while he sat and so on. That's why everybody joined in this extraordinary farce and the coronation with those ridiculous clothes and all that. Everybody joined in because most of the thinking people of France said, look, we've got to try and make this work. And uh, I think the greatest problem with Napoleon was that he did lead that enterprise and he did do quite a lot to begin with that was very good and he made things happen which were going to happen anyway, but Couldn't happen because there wasn't a strong executive. But then he actually betrayed the enterprise, and then it was me, me, me. Because anybody, this is the awful thing of absolute power. Anybody who simply so much as declared a reservation or said, Well, excuse me, sire, don't you think we could do something this way, or couldn't we look at it that way, was immediately given the chill and they were out. And To me, it was a great enterprise, a joint enterprise, that went terribly, terribly wrong, and I think it's very sad that it did. And I'm afraid the blame lies with him.
2: Right, Andrew will now tell us why we should have voted for the proposition that Napoleon should be called the great.
0: Ladies and gentlemen... Everyone who put in one of these black little cards is following in the tradition of Goethe, Hegel, Berlioz, Byron, Carlyle, the great intellectuals who appreciated that he was a bona fide. Intellectual, a connoisseur, a critic, a theorist of drama and music, a man who championed science, who socialized with astronomers, and who impressed these great men as well as all of those of you who, uh, who were handed in this card. <laughs> he was in the Enlightenment, ladies and gentlemen, on horseback. He abolished, wherever he or his armies went, they abolished uh, feudalism, they rationalised countries, they abolished the Spanish Inquisition um, and uh, all, the, all the appalling backward things that had held Europe back for so long under the legitimists and the ancien regimes of whom the spokesman, it seems tonight, is Count Adam Zemot. Um, it's very it's wonderful news, by the way, that he's writing a biography of Napoleon, and I am very much looking forward to reviewing it. Um, but when one sees the uh, the, the, the effects of uh, this great man, and when they went into these towns, one of the first things they do, like in the Papal States, classic example, the Papal States. where Jews still had to wear the yellow star and where they were forced into ghettos. He not only um, opened up the ghettos, but he gave civil and religious um, rights and liberties to uh, the Jews and to everyone else. This is a liberating concept, the idea of the Enlightenment on horseback. And for all of you who um, voted um, yes, you can feel yourself part of one of the great liberating Enlightenment traditions. (laughs) Those of you who didn't, of course, uh, are are still uh, stuck in the mire of reaction, legitimacy, and the Ancien Régime. Thank you very much indeed.
2: Well, Andrew, um, Adam, thank you both very much indeed. Uh, We will await the results of this vote, which I think, with any luck, is just on its way down to us now. Brilliant. Since you've been wasting your breath for the last couple of minutes, it's at least polite to tell you what it is. Right. Well... Uh, Before people had heard the arguments, there were 49% in favour of the proposition and 24 against and 27 didn't know. After the debate, there are now 56% in favour of the proposition, 43 against and 1% who don't know. So at least we've helped people make up their minds. (laughs) Even if it's come at the cost, apparently... I don't understand how this works. Apparently, it's there's minus, a minus 6% yeah. swing vote uh, against you against in favour of Adam. Adam. Congratulations.
0: Well oh. <laughs> <laughs> that <old> boy. <laughs> it's really good fun. <laughs> Book selling is the next bit.
2: There are a worrying number of Enlightenment people here, though. <laughs> uh, yes. Anyway, thank you both very much. Thank you very much to Intelligence Squared. Thank you all very much uh, for coming. Uh, and uh, until the next time. And
0: the books are on sale.
2: Oh, there are books on sale outside, here. <laughs> yes.
0: Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like
3: to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.